baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. Well, it's a pretty big afternoon because we had the announcement an hour ago that our own Fred Bottomer is going into the St. Louis Media Hall of Fame Yay. on February 1st. So we're very proud of Fred. He gets to do a six-minute speech, he said. Yeah, gets to. <laughs> I, so hate, I hate speeches so much. What do you, how do you do with public speaking and speeches? I'm not, it's not my favorite thing. I get really nervous. Yeah, me too. I hate it's it. It's not the same thing as sitting in this room. No, it's not the same thing at all. You got eyeballs on you and all that stuff. I get super nervous. I don't like it. Fred, in though, is a good writer. He'll do better than us, probably. By the way, I don't mind. Like, if I have to MC something. And, oh, and that's do, fine. Yeah. But, like, spe- I'm talking about yes. if I'm the focus of attention, and I could sit here on the radio and blab for, forever, but, again, no one's looking at me in here. Uh-huh. It's different. I it am, really but is. It, who cares? I would, get, I would even get nervous, you know, all those years I would go on TV because it was sort of out of my element. You know, oh, when I, I go on that. Channel 4, it's just a little bit of anxiety. I get that. Anxiety. TV oh. I have no problem with. On stage, yes. That's called stage fright, right? Well, I don't I know believe. if it's that. I just, it's just, yeah, it's nerve wracking. And then when you get up there, it's okay. Well, you know, what's funny about that is our friend uh, Norbert Leo Butts, Steve's brother, two time Tony Award winning actor. And, and I've interviewed Norbert, Norbert several times. He's a friend, but he mentioned this the last time he was here is that he, he has a lot of anxiety. He's told me how before he goes, this guy's on Broadway. Oh, my God. Before gosh. he goes on stage, it's like all built up, pent up. And then he gets out there and boom. And there is that moment. I used to have this too, where you just worry about it. What am I going to do? Am I going to fail? And then it kind of all goes away when yeah. you're in the moment. It's pretty right? great. Uh, Ilya Shapiro, constitutional law expert, is going to visit with us in the next um, segment coming up at 525 about the Supreme Court and what they might do when it comes to Colorado and Maine to keep Trump off the ballot. We have, however, another great legal mind with us that we'll uh, ask that question to before some other topics. Andrew Bailey, the Missouri Attorney General, who's now been on the job for about one year, is with us this afternoon. Happy New Year. How are you this afternoon, Andrew? Hey, Mark, thanks for having me on. Let me say congrats to Fred, man. That's huge. Well-deserved. It is huge, and we are so proud of him. Um, just speaking candidly, my greatest fear about Fred is that he's going to leave us and retire because exactly. he's getting to that age. So I don't want that to happen. Nope. And hopefully he didn't hear me say that, so we're planting any ideas. Nope. My guess is he's had that idea already, Andrew. <laughs> All right, so when was the first day of the gig last year? Was it around this time, or was it later in January? You know, I swore into office on uh, the morning of January 3rd, just uh, shortly after uh, Senator Eric Schmidt swore into office in Washington, D.C., and uh, we were right at work that first day. I don't know that everybody in the state of Missouri realizes that we had an ex- the state had an execution uh, scheduled that evening on January 3rd, so I went from a press conference to a meeting at the Chamber of Commerce back to the office to prepare to discharge our official duties uh, under the execution protocol. And, and we, we've been at work since then. I mean, this has been an enormous year fighting and winning for the people of the state of Missouri. You know, I can point to things like ousting Kim Gardner, uh, the Missouri v. Biden case, the most important First Amendment suit in this nation's history, putting a stop to the student loan cancellation plan at the United States Supreme Court that President Biden, uh, where he tried to saddle working Missouri families with Ivy League debt. 
stopping the waters of the United States rule. It was nothing short of a, a agricultural land grab by the federal government here in Missouri, uh, ending the EPA ozone restrictions that were attack on the oil and gas industry, suing DHS over the border chaos. I mean, the list goes on and on. Enormous wins uh, for the people of the state of Missouri, and it's, it's a fight we've been in since January 3rd of last year. Well, you've been on a great roll, and I've been, and I know a lot of other people have been particularly impressed. Let me focus on one area, and I addressed this issue earlier on the show because there is a, it's not really a new piece written by Jamie Reed, but she gave a speech back in October, and the Free Press sort of highlighted that today. And, of course, Jamie is the whistleblower from WashU and the St. Louis Children's Hospital uh, Transgender Clinic. But that was a big, big story from last year. Yeah, that's right. I'm proud of the work that my office has done fighting to protect children of the state of Missouri. I want Missouri to be the safest state in the nation for children. And uh, when Jamie Reed came forward in February, I'd been on the job for less than two months, and she submitted an affidavit to our office that uh, made some very credible uh, allegations that required us to launch an investigation. We uncovered a network of these clinics operating across the state and took appropriate action to try to put safeguards in place to protect children from this kind of sterilization procedures. I mean, these are dangerous, powerful drugs that have long-term negative health consequences, irreversible surgeries on kids under 17 years of age. And we've been not only fighting with the clinic uh, to put a stop to it, investigate and hold wrongdoers accountable, but working with the General Assembly to get Senate Bill 49 passed, to put safety measures in place, explaining to them the lessons we learned from our investigation, and then successfully defending Senate Bill 49 that stopped child sterilization in the state of Missouri. I think that it's important people realize we're the first state in the nation to have successfully defended that kind of legislative measure at the trial court level. So again, proud of the work we've done. Uh, I think that uh, at the end of the day, what Jamie Reed uh, said in her affidavit triggered so much of this. It was a catalyst event. And she's been vindicated in a lot of ways, not only through her uh, subsequent uh, testimony in court, but also through speeches like the one she gave in October yeah. and, and some of the work that the journalists have done to corroborate her allegations. Yeah, that, that speech that she gave in the transcript is what I referred to earlier on the show is really amazing. And one of the things that, that will not surprise you is that she talks about her experience with this New York Times reporter who did the story on her in August. And, you know, it took you a little while to punch down into the paragraphs. But once you started reading that piece, you realized that there were a lot of people that agreed with Jamie Reed and it wasn't a completely unfair piece. However, when she gave this speech, she basically talks about how the reporter was sort of leaning her in a different direction, saying, oh, you know, your progressive um, ideas have gone by the wayside and, and what happened to you. And she says in that speech, look, it wasn't my my uh, brainwashing by the right. She says, I'm still a progressive who follows science. And the science, if you look at what's happened in the U.K. and elsewhere, and certainly here in St. Louis, pointed her in a very dangerous direction that these kids are being harmed. Yeah. No, let's think about that for a minute, too. I mean, here you've got a legacy media outlet, the New York Times, trying to convince this whistleblower that somehow she had changed. Like, who is that reporter to be injecting herself into the story in that manner and trying to influence the outcome of, of the story one way or the other? I mean, that's not that's not objective journalism. It's no. it's a it's an attempt to pr- make a political persuasion. And good for Jamie Reed for sticking to her guns. Look, Jamie Reed and I don't agree on much, but we both believe that sterilizing children through harmful medication or irreversible surgery is child abuse. So, Andrew, you, you now are in election year. You, you've had this position for a year. You're running for re-election. You have um, at least one opponent in, in Will Sharp. So what's 2024 about? What are the goals for this year? Well, we're going to keep fighting and winning for Missourians. Look, this is the show-me state. Results matter. And, you know, as someone who took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, was willing to put my line, life on the line to do it in the United States Army, I'm proud to now be leading that effort you know, from the battlefields in the war on terror now to the courtrooms across this country. And so we're going to continue to fight 
to improve our criminal justice system. Look, we've had a 133 percent increase in requests for the attorney general's office to prosecute violent criminals. We prosecuted at least five murderers last year. We've uh, got 19 guilty verdicts through jury trials. 35 guilty pleas, closed out 365 habeas referral appeals, and filed 447 appellate briefs defending the state's conviction on appeal. So uh, we've gone circuit by circuit, meeting with prosecutors, sheriffs, police chiefs, reinforcing the criminal justice system, holding wrongdoers accountable, and most importantly, finding justice for victims. I mean, so many victims of crime serve a life sentence because they deal with the trauma uh, that the, the criminal defendant inflicted upon them. And so being there to support them and their efforts and continue to shore up the criminal justice system is a top priority. Does the office or do you have a relationship and a good relationship with Gabe Gore, the uh, the circuit attorney who replaced Kim Gardner, who I guess now says he will run for election? Yeah, we stand ready to assist any uh, prosecutor's office in the state of Missouri. You know, proud of the work that Gabe's doing. I think he uh, has really turned that around. But look, Kim Gardner dug us into such a deep hole. That's not something you can turn around in eight months, 12 months, even necessarily 24 months. I think the, the current circuit attorney is doing everything he can and having the warrant office open so when police uh, catch bad guys and hook them up, they can go to the prosecutor and get a warrant to hold the wrongdoer uh, until such time uh, as they can get him to trial, keeping the scheduled trial docket, moving those cases forward, filing new charges, increasing the number of, of cases uh, that are actually charged instead of just police reports sitting on a desk uncharged. I mean, that's all important work that the circuit attorney is doing, yeah. but we stand ready to assist all prosecutors across the state. We've got 115 elected prosecutors and uh, all 100 percent of felony appeals come to the attorney general's office. So we have an important role to play. And coming from a prosecutor's office and having those relationships and that experience, uh, that matters to me. So I got distracted at the uh, beginning of the interview because you were nice enough to throw some, um, you know, congratulations to Fred. But I was going to ask you of your opinion. I'm going to talk to Ilya Shapiro about this here in a couple of minutes of the efforts to keep Trump off the ballot in Colorado. I think a lot of us are hoping that the Supremes get involved here in a more, um, or I guess I would say a less partisan way to say, hey, uh, justices in Colorado, what are you thinking here? I mean, there's nothing constitutional about that at all. Yeah, that's right. Look, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with, you know, trespassing at the state capitol during a demonstration. And if, if, if anything, I think there's a counterclaim that needs to be filed against President Biden for fomenting insurrection by opening the border yes. and allowing potential enemies of the United States into the United States of America. If that isn't an insurrection, I don't know what is. And so uh, if, uh, you know, hey, look, it's a double-edged sword. Now, I will tell you that, again, that amendment had to do with, uh, you know, former Confederate officers right, exactly. who reported to serve in Congress, not the state of Colorado and who gets to be on their presidential ballot. So Colorado Supreme Court got it wrong. But, hey, if that's the road we're going to go down, President Biden is doing more to foment insurrection in the United States by chaos at the border than, than anybody has, yeah. ever has in the past. I've made that point several times. You're absolutely right about that. Andrew Bailey, Happy New Year to you. Thanks for coming on the show as much as you do, and we will talk soon. Hey, Mark, Happy New Year to you. Thanks for having me on. All the best to you and your listeners. All right, take care. Um, you know, I'm glad he made that point about Joe Biden because I do think that that's very valid yeah, it when is. it comes to an insurrection. I want to feature something here before we get to Ilya that I think plays in here to that Colorado case. And I've talked about, I can't get her on the air and I'm frustrated. I've talked about Sasha Stone before because Sasha is somebody that I've known, not personally, but we've had, um, she was someone and is someone that runs a website for Hollywood um, awards handicapping. It's called awardsdaily.com. So if you look at it right now, it'll show you who's the favorite to win the best um, picture at the Golden Globes and oh, the Critics' Choice Awards and the Oscars. And they compile. And as soon as the Oscars are over, 
the very next day, she'll have something on her website about the best chances for next year's Oscars. I mean, this is what they do. It's an Oscar handicapping website. And I will say this, that she has exerted a fair amount of influence in Hollywood because of that website. But because I knew Sasha from that and I was giving her some information every once in a while about the organization that I belong to, Broadcast Film Critics, in a, not a surreptitious surreptitious way, but just, was that even a word, Sue? What are you saying, serendipitous? No, that wasn't the word. I was giving her information because there were questions about how votes were coming down and people were interpreting it. And I would give her just on the QT just a little information about where, you know, I felt like things were heading. Anyway, that's the only relationship I had. I just point out because it was like a Facebook message here, Facebook message there. Didn't know her. But what I did know subsequently, thank you, uh, is that she was a rabid lefty. I mean, to the point where I unfriended her on Facebook. And I rarely do that. I did it to a couple of people saying stupid things about Jews in the past month, and I'm like, okay, Dumb. you're an anti-Semite. I'm getting rid of you. Um, but with, with Sasha, it got, it just got so bad. I'm like, I can't take it anymore. Right. Right. Well, that's important because of where she is now, mm-hmm. and this transition has been amazing to me. And I think it's, it's a little bit along the lines. It's not quite Bill Maher because I think Bill Maher has been true to who he is, but he also sees the nonsense that's going on on the left. Um, You've seen other examples of this, but maybe not as dramatic as Sasha, because I'm telling you, she was way out there. So now she's to the point where she writes something like this, and this kind of plays into Colorado. She talks about how, you know, since 2016, being labeled a Trump supporter has given most people the green light to cut ties, publicly humiliate, attack, dehumanize at will. What you will rarely see on the left is empathy. What has become all too common is unfiltered, bottomless hatred. In too many cases, physical violence and destructive protests all justified and encouraged by the ruling class class so she says and she gives a little history says 2020 was the breaking point for me i could no longer go along with it especially after getting to know trump supporters and watching enough rallies to know the truth about who trump really is and now after the colorado decision to throw trump off the ballot there's been a terrifying escalation in how they plan to deal with trump and maga and this is very important and and i i would hope that people in the middle on the left, would hear her messaging. Because she says, what started as cancel culture, where due process was tossed in favor of trial by mob, has spread to the government, infecting it like a parasitic fungus that ultimately kills its host. From censorship to their treatment of the political protesters of January 6th, to what they've done to this country's Justice Department, much of its culture, its universities, and the minds and the bodies of children, it's time to say enough. Now, these are powerful words from anyone. Sure. Right? But I'm just, I'm just telling you the perspective that I had with this person who could not have been further away from me politically. And I think kind of hate, hateful in her own way, the way she treated people who may have supported George W. Bush or any other Republicans. But she had some sort of epiphany. There's no doubt about it. She said it was already enough when the sitting president of the United States was banned from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. It was enough when they raided Mar-a-Lago when they convicted Trump in a show trial on primetime television that the idiots on the left now seem to believe counted as a real trial. The four indictments are enough. Two impeachments are enough. Scaring the public every day, whipping up mass hysteria just for clicks, just for engagement, just for ratings is enough. Robert De Niro and his ongoing freakouts are enough. Stephen Colbert's unfunny jokes are enough. A culture that has de- destroyed itself over an imaginary monster they invented yep. is enough. And yes, removing Trump's name from the ballot in Colorado is enough. 
This moment, and, and this is, I'm so glad she wrote this, and I felt this way a couple of weeks ago, and then the holiday came and we were backed off of our passion for this, but this is such an important case and it's such nonsense that the Colorado Supremes did this, and even more ridiculous that the Secretary of State in Maine just did this by herself saying, okay, he's not on the ballot. We're talking about serious issues here. And as Sasha Stone writes, the power center in this country can't do things that they want to do because um, people want relief from them. There are some good Democrats out there. John Fetterman. Look, John Fetterman has, I think, turned around a lot of opinions lately. And I said this last week. I said you can see, you know, use examples of people in in our state. Um, Nobody knows Mike Parson, but people in Missouri know Mike Parson. You might see him on a national stage saying, who is this guy, right? Well, with Fetterman, I think a lot of us did that, and we didn't realize how the people of Pennsylvania may have connected with him just as a person. You know, not as a Democrat or a partisan. But she mentions Dean Phillips, who's running for president, RFK Jr., but they're too far and few behind or between. I'm sorry. The ruling oligarchy now stands in their way because that is how little they trust democracy. So, I mean, she just goes on and on here in really rips her fellow, well, her former fellow Democrats. What Democrats and never Trumpers want now is to push Trump and MAGA back into the danger zone. They want more violence. They want riots. They want an uprising that they can then bring in the military, weaponized dissent, speech, ideology, and have the full backing of the American public. Sasha wrote, we're almost there now. But don't take the bait, MAGA. You can defeat them by being the calm, reasonable side. This is what worries me because I do think there's people that don't want to be the calm, reasonable side. And they're going to take the bait. And they're going to do things that are going to put them and certainly Republicans into peril. She says, well, any Republican can take us to a much better place than any Democrat right now. That is stunning to hear her write that. Mm. Trump is still the best person for the job because he's the source of the mass delusion. If he wins, we can all get back to reality. Whether he succeeds or fails won't matter much. What matters is releasing this country from the grips of madness. And I want to focus on that because I think that that's where a lot of the support is right now. And I understand it. I, I perhaps understand that better than I did even the um, the appeal that Trump had to working class workers in 2016. Right. Because what's happened is we've seen craziness. You know, if you want to point to something that was positive with COVID, it's the extreme measures that were hoisted upon us by mainly Democrats and terrified the hell out of us. And then we realized, wait a second, you did it for what? The grips of madness. That was the grips of madness. We're in this Grip when it comes to the trans issues, all this other nonsense that we hear, the race issues. It goes on and on and on. And I think that's exactly what's propelling Trump to the forefront again. And I can, in a certain way, even though I'm not the biggest fan of Donald Trump and his personality, support that because it is madness what we've encountered. And anyone would be better than what we have right now. So I don't know where 24 is going to take us. We're less than two weeks away now from the caucuses. It looks like it's going to be an indicted former president against a president who's slobbering on himself and can barely get words out. So it's going to be an interesting year. Ilya Shapiro coming up. He'll break down the constitutional questions about the Supreme Court and that Colorado case coming up. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. 
Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Have an audio cut of the day before the end of this hour. Tomorrow on the show, we'll get Mr. Kilmeade back for the first time in a few weeks. He had last week off, which is just amazing because Brian never takes any time off. We already have a roundtable set for Friday. Fred is on it. That's why he's a Hall of Famer. Jane will be here. State Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman and former State Senator Jeff Smith all on the panel on Friday afternoon. So before Christmas, obviously, we had this ridiculous decision in Colorado about keeping Trump off the ballot. I have wanted to, ever since then, get the opinion of Ilya Shapiro, who is currently the Director of Constitutional Studies for the Manhattan Institute. I know he's going to have some thoughts on that. Ilya, Happy New Year. How are you this afternoon? Doing all right. Uh, uh, all of a sudden, with uh, we can talk about uh, that, of course, but uh, Claudine Gay of Harvard, her resignation, that took up all my afternoon. Yeah, let's start with that. That's been a story that I have talked about earlier in the show. We monologued about it. It seemed like the pressure was just there. A lot of us have been saying, look, there had to be big donors that were pulling back on the purse strings in order for this to finally happen. Any thoughts on that? Well, look, it was bad enough, uh, her uh, response to the Hamas attack on Israel back in October, the kind of drip, drip, five statements, ultimately trying to get it right, not pleasing anyone. The campus climate, which uh, fire ranks worse in the country for free speech and, and students feeling comfortable to express themselves. Then the disastrous uh, congressional testimony, after which Penn's president uh, resigned very soon. Similar thing, and now finally plagiarism is what ultimately uh, got Claudine Gay. But look, uh, the problem remains, you know, Harvard's uh, institutional rot is not limited to uh, to its leader. Um, there's a lot of issues to be addressed. The board, uh, you know, intimidated, hired a law firm to intimidate reporters against uh, uh, covering the plagiarism back in the fall. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, uh, campus culture issues, academic freedom issues, the, the DEI tail that wags the dog, that, that subverts the the classical mission of truth-seeking and open inquiry. So there's a lot going on there. And it's not only at Harvard, of course. Uh, uh, not, and it's not only at elite, so-called elite schools. Higher ed in general is, is in for a reckoning. So you have uh, Ibram Kendi and others. This is what he said today. Racist mobs won't stop until they topple all black people from positions of power and influence who are not reinforcing the structure of racism. What these racist mobs are doing should be obvious to any reporter who cares about truth or justice as opposed to conflicts and cliques. Obviously, he's not really... Um, you know, prepped himself on the the plagiarism allegations, and I think he doesn't realize that the aforementioned president or former president of Penn was white. But this this all gets thrown on race again, Ilya. Well, of course, so does uh, Gay's uh, resignation letter uh, talked about racial animus uh, and the uh, the board's uh, parallel uh, statement. They're 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 doing that. As, you know, she was hired. Uh, because she checked, not just because she checked various identity boxes, but because she herself became known for pushing DEI structures and new initiatives of uh, of that sort. Um, you know, and, and the board has bought into that. So they, they were between a rock and a hard place. Plagiarism is sort of an out that uh, to let her go, even though she wasn't uh, qualified to be there in the first place. But as you said, Liz McGill's white, so many university presidents and other officials uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, are probably not uh, shouldn't be there and if, if it was all based on merit. So this has uh, nothing to do with race. So on the plagiarism allegations, it's my understanding that, you know, the Harvard Corporation, some of this was already being exposed before she went to Capitol Hill and testified. So you, you have to wonder, and I think maybe I'm just answering my question here, if any of this would have happened without that testimony, right? Well, the testimony put a uh, uh, crystallized the matter and put a lot of focus on her. More journalists started 
digging into her records. It's not that difficult to discover the plagiarism. I mean, my colleague Chris Rufo, Aaron Sibarium at the uh, Washington Free Beacon to get the lion's share of the credit for exposing all of this. But it's the, the, the way that, that, that plagiarism programs uh, work these, these days. You just run it through the computer, and professors know how to do this to, to catch their students. And uh, it became uh, untenable. It became a roiling debate on campus. The Harvard Crimson had pro and con um, at a certain point, you're right, and, and the donors who, who have sway, Bill Ackman has been an activist on his uh, on his Twitter feed. I mean, I, you know, Harvard is rich. It doesn't need any one particular donor, even a billionaire. I can survive that sort of thing. But uh, he has, uh, Ackman has a lot of exposure. And first he was active on the uh, pushing back on anti-Semitism and free speech issues. And now, uh, now with this, and he really wants to fix uh, his alma mater, which is, which is admirable. Well, Ilya Shapiro is here, constitutional expert. Let's talk about the Trump case from from Colorado. I mean, is there is there any scenario where? Well, I guess there's a couple of scenarios because the Supremes could just sit on this and run out the clock, and then his name goes on the ballot. At least that was my understanding. What can you tell me about that? Um, yeah, the uh, the ruling has stayed. The Colorado Supreme Court stayed its own ruling pending final resolution by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so the you know ultimately the the, the court is going to. Uh, decide this by the end of june um so you know regardless of what happens for with the colorado primary um i think that's in march uh, probably won't see a decision by then but uh but his name should appear um uh, but by june the supreme court will rule if he's the nominee um i i don't see a scenario where the u.s supreme court uh, affirms uh, the colorado supreme court they'll find some uh, narrow technicality to to reverse and, and not five to four or six to three with Republicans over Democrats. It might even be unanimous, um, but certainly more than, than six to three. I, I think it's, um, you know, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, who's now you know turned on Trump and says he's, you know, not good for the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I had a, an op-ed today in the wall street journal saying, you know, I oppose Trump, but this is not the way to uh, go about getting rid of him. Uh, and uh, whether it's Colorado through the courts or even worse for legitimacy of the process, Maine, where it's just the Secretary of yeah. State on her own on her own motion, effectively uh, uh, removing from the ballot. This, you know, whatever you know, the, the the legal arguments aren't frivolous. It's not that the Colorado Supreme Court is completely out to lunch. There are legal arguments about this, um, but uh, in terms of the political legitimacy of the whole thing, I mean, this this plays into. Uh, Trump's uh, uh, narrative of, you know, they're out to get me, they're not going to have a fair election, uh, that sort of thing. And and obviously it only helps him. It solidified his support in the GOP primary, for one thing. Yeah, but in this particular case, when the story broke a couple of weeks ago, there were a lot of people, a lot of pundits were saying, well, look, we hope that the, um, there was even hope, and I think I said this, I hope that the Supreme Court comes in here and is unanimous, or they put the kibosh on this. And I remember the January 5th date being used as sort of um, when they had to do something because of ballots being printed. What I hear you saying is they may not fast track this at all and sit on this until June. So how does that, you know, logistically work out with, with primaries? Uh, well, like like I said, the Colorado ruling has stayed pending the resolution. So if if the Supreme Court doesn't rule before, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I don't know the ballot printing deadline, January fifth, whatever, you know, this week, I guess. Well, that's not they're not going to rule by then, right? Okay. Uh, I, I think I, I guess the ballots are going to be printed, and uh, you know, there there are, there are things that courts do as as elections approach that uh, kind of try not to change the rules right on the eve of the election, which is part of the reason why all the COVID changes in in uh, 
uh, in 2020 were, were, were problematic. But but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Colorado primary is, is relatively late in the in the day. It's you know, un, unclear whether it's it, it, whether this uh, ruling would, would affect that primary. Uh, uh, anyway, I, have, I haven't uh, delved into the minutia of Colorado law or whether it's only relating to the general election, by which point, uh, absolutely, by November, the Supreme Court will have ruled. Okay, so in, in other words, if, if they rule and if they somehow say uh, Colorado was right, then that could affect the rest of the, uh, of the election cycle, right? But you're saying that if retroactively they say, look, Colorado did not have the right to do this and they rule that in June, well, the ballots were still printed and because they put the stay on it, the vote will still take place with his name on the ballot. Is that essentially right. it? Yeah, okay. That, as, as far as I understand Colorado law, I'm no Colorado law expert, but, but I, from, what I'm, from my understanding of the procedural posture is that that is what uh, happens. That this is all about the general, not so much about the Republican What Does something procedurally prevent the Supreme Court from, from acting like today and saying and, and issuing a ruling, or is it just the way that they work? They don't work fast No, well, way. they wouldn't issue a full ruling because it's just not— um, there, there's not that exigency. I mean, you saw in Bush v. Gore, they had briefing and argument and a ruling in about two weeks or so. Um, you know, they, they they can put in an administrative stay, which is just, you know, taking no position on anything. They just stay the thing. But as I said, the, the Colorado court stayed its own ruling pending uh, Supreme Court yeah, resolution, yeah. so they don't, they don't right. even need to do that. Ilya Shapiro, always great to have you on. Happy New Year. Thanks for the update Happy this afternoon. All right, take care. We'll talk soon. 539. Let me get to a little bit more of Claudine Gay and her resignation. Six months, two days, the shortest tenure ever for a Harvard president before he left for the holidays. It certainly looked like it might be heading in that direction, but she was uh, very defiant and you know kept flipping this around on race. And I mentioned that's what Ibram Kendi did today. Here's another one where this woman on Twitter, and I, I saw this because Megyn Kelly retweeted it. Celeste Ng is her name. So what we've learned is bad faith bigots pretending they're concerned about anti-Semitism will happily use women of color, especially black women, as a scapegoat and a lightning rod for large systemic issues and that people invested in maintaining those systemic issues will comply. So it's all about it's all about race. And it's not about the fact that she these these plagiarism accusations are relatively serious. I mean, it's not just it's not just uh, a little bit here and a little bit there. It seems to me that every time they started digging, and the Harvard Crimson, Crimson the, the newspaper, they were digging, they come out over the weekend and they say, okay, well, she plagiarized, but it's not that serious. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, because I guess I can explain it in this way. They were essentially saying that there were things, I mean, this is my interpretation, that you had— um, she was borrowing things from other people in a legitimate way. Look, there's a guy from the University of Wisconsin that she is accused of plagiarizing, and he came out and said, okay, I'm fine with it. So I don't really know all the details of the minutia, but let's look at the students and, and what they face at, um, at Harvard. So here, here's someone who was the undergraduate member of what they call the Harvard College Honor Council. That's the body that hands out punishment for those found guilty of plagiarism. And that's what this person says. In my time on the council, I heard dozens of cases. When students, my classmates, peers, and friends appear before the council, they are distraught. For most, it's probably the worst day of their college careers, if not the worst day of their life, right? They often cry, she says. In my experience, when students omit quotation marks and citations, as President Gay did, the sanction is usually one term of probation, a permanent mark on the student's record. A student on probation is lo- no longer considered in good standing, disqualifying them from opportunities like fellowships and study abroad programs. Good standing is also required to get your degree. In my experience, she says, when a student is found responsible for multiple 
separate honor code violations, <clears throat> Claudine Gay, they are generally required to withdraw, suspended from the college for two semesters. Since the council was established in 2015, she says 16% of students who have appeared before us have been required to withdraw. So, you know, a little less than one out of five, but they do something serious enough to have to be at least put on a two-year suspension. And this person concludes this by saying there is one standard. It's pretty clear. I don't even think you need to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is one standard for me and my peers and another much lower standard for our university president. Now, this was all written before she resigned today. But, you know, you had a lot of people that were weighing in here because of her race. And I think you've seen that reaction on Twitter today. Um, they're accusing, here's another one, Ida Bay Wells. Well, they got what they wanted from their well-executed plan. Like this was some sort of plan to get Claudine Gay to go up there to Capitol Hill and make a complete idiot out of herself. Let's remind people how she got into this. Not the plagiarism, but the plagiarism was already on the table. I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. And there have been multiple marches at Harvard with students chanting, quote, there is only one solution, intifada revolution, and, quote, globalize the intifada. Is that correct? I've heard that thoughtless, reckless, and hateful language on our campus, yes. So do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? Well, she didn't do very well on that answer, and that's what got her into mm. trouble. And, you know, at the time, some, I was reminded of something else there I'll point out in a second, but at the time, you might remember, and I could play more audio here, but this happened three weeks ago, Elise Stefanik, the New York congresswoman, gave her so many, and Liz McGill and the others, so many off-ramps to say, wait a second, just to make sure that we hear you correctly— and they didn't take them. The other thing about this is, and I pointed out at the time, I'm not so sure that the president of Harvard shouldn't resign just because she doesn't know how to pronounce the word abhorrent. Abhorrent. I, it might have been what really pushed her over the edge. I have a great audio cut of the day from the legendary, the one and only Dave Chappelle. If you've seen his new special, this will be a repeat for you. If you haven't, you're going to love it. I have a really good Dave Chappelle audio cut of the day coming up here in just a couple of minutes. But let me let me kind of circle back to the iron don't call him Ian Zering story because I have a little bit more audio. So this was the guy that was the blonde dude, good-looking guy from Beverly Hills, 90210. He was also one of the uh, stars of Sharknado. And on New Year's Eve, he was on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, um, you know, where the Walk of Fame is. He's with his 10-year-old daughter and a group of about a dozen mini bikers. Mini bikers are like a, a new thing here. We're surrounding his vehicle. And he thought one of the guys who was in front of his car might have done some damage. So he gets out of the car, and this is where you kind of see the video that's gone viral make, um, make it start. He goes to check. It all happens very quickly, Sue, because all of a sudden punches are thrown. Oh, yeah. He's thrown punches. They're throwing punches. He runs across the street to kind of run away from them. Um, luckily, his daughter was not hurt. You think about that. If something could have happened to him, and by the way, she could have, well, she did see all this. So you think how horrifying it is. 
TMZ ran with the story when it first happened. They made a mistake because they mistook his younger daughter for the older daughter. He had a younger daughter in the car, and the 12-year-old was with um, was with mom. So this is what it—I don't know if this will help you or not, but this is what it sounded like. They're just going back and forth. and doesn't do much for you audio-wise because you got to look at the video. Here's William Lajeunesse from Fox. Now, first of all, these mini bikes are not street legal. No lights, no plates, no insert insurance, so they should not have been there in the first place. Secondly, so this is a street takeover. That's illegal, where they weave in and out of traffic, ignore all the traffic laws. So in this case, one of the bikers apparently clips his new, SU his new SUV. New Year's Eve, middle of Hollywood, he confronts the biker, fight breaks out, others join in, before he eventually gets away to a crowd of looky-loos across the street who do nothing. Now, I'm going to show you this in slow motion. All right, so then he shows the video, and I don't know if you can blame the people that are looking across the street, because you just walk around Hollywood Boulevard, and you see a guy get out of the car, and hell, you might think they're filming a movie or something like that. It was so well, crazy. I didn't even think of that. So he released a statement and said, I'm relieved to report that my daughter and I are both completely unscathed, but the incident has left me deeply concerned about the growing boldness of such groups who disrupt public safety no and peace. The situation highlights a larger issue of hooliganism on our streets and the need for effective law enforcement responses to such behavior. <sighs> he supported the police. What? Cancel Ian Zeering. As a citizen and a parent, I find it unacceptable that groups can freely engage in this kind of behavior causing fear and chaos while the response from authority seems insufficient. Um, now, my understanding was that there wasn't really, you know, police weren't called. I don't know if there now has been a police report. They have this on video. You'd think they'd try to find these guys. But, um, you know, what are you going to do about this? And you see all the, the reckless behavior at the Walgreens and the CVS. Now, thankfully, a lot of this happens with the hooliganism, as he called it, in California. But good Lord, this, this one could have turned out a lot worse. Yeah, it could have. All right. I got a good one for you here, Sue. I think you'll like this here this afternoon. I think everyone's going to. Stand by. Playback ready. Now, the audio cut of the day. Audio Cut of the Day is sponsored by my friends at the Good Feet Store. It's all about comfort, energy, performance, and pain relief. Now, I, I don't often play, nor do I think I've ever played a two-minute comedy bit as Audio Cut of the Day. Mm. So this is going to run about two minutes, but it's got a payoff to it, all Love right? It. So you got to hear the whole thing. I just can't play the payoff. And if you've seen the new special, I haven't watched it yet. I haven't either. I'm going to. Here's a little preview for you that will serve as Audio Cut of the Day, Dave Chappelle. And the only thing that got me out of that space was a comedian friend of mine the late, great Norm MacDonald. And what Norm did, which I'll never forget, is he knew that I was the biggest Jim Carrey fan in the world. Now, I'm not going to go all into it, but Jim Carrey is talented in a way that you can't practice or rehearse. What a God-given talent. I was fascinated with him. And Norm knew that. And he called me up and he goes, Dave, um, he says, I'm doing a movie with Jim Carrey. Um, do you want to meet him? And I said, Yes, I do. And it was the first time I could remember since my father died being excited. And the movie was called Man on the Moon. I didn't know any of this. And in this movie, Jim Carrey was playing another comedian I admired, the late, great Andy Kaufman. Yes, and Jim Carrey was so immersed in that role that from the moment he woke up to the time he went to bed at night, he would live his life as Andy Kaufman. I didn't know that. When they said cut, it's still Andy Kaufman. So much so that everybody on the crew called him Andy. And when he walked into the room where we were supposed to meet, I screamed, Jim Carrey. And everyone said, no. <laughs> Call him Andy. 
and I didn't understand. And then he came over and he was acting weird. I didn't know he was acting like Andy Kaufman. He's just like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, hello. <laughs> Andy? You know, they call that method acting, right? When, when the so. actor, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so he's doing method acting. That's what Chappelle's talking about. How lucky am I that I got to see one of the greatest artists of my time immersed in one of his most challenging processes ever. Very lucky to have seen that. But as it was happening, I was very disappointed. <laughs> because I wanted to meet Jim Carrey. And I had to pretend as Andy Kaufman. All afternoon. And he was clearly Jim Carrey. I could look at him and I could see he was Jim Carrey. Anyway, I say all that to say, that's how trans people make me feel. You got to step into that. So that was the payoff there. So now you got the media. You know, the Rolling Stone's very disappointed. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate that Chappelle's The Dreamer is like some of his prior Netflix specials, obsessively fixated on the trans community because it's not an area he particularly excels at. Um, au contraire. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is absolutely an area that he excels at. And I'm so glad that he revisited it for this new special. I got to maybe watch it tonight. Right? There's no football on tonight. It's a Tuesday night. It's called The Dreamer on Netflix. Dave Chappelle is your audio cut of the day. Have a great night. Happy New Year. We'll talk tomorrow at 3. Get more at 971talk.com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.